Genesis does what Nintendo don't. And we like all fell on the floor. <laughs>
okay, so you put in time at Mattel and Hasbro prior. How did that lead to starting at Sega in 1989? And yeah, what was the what was the inroad to that starting there? Uh, first of all, the toy industry is very much like the video game industry and how you market it, how you develop products. And so therefore it was a, a very natural transition. Uh, we had also from Mattel Paul Rio as our executive VP and CFO. Uh, and then of course, Tom Kalitsky, who was the president of Mattel. So it was, it's well, cats, very, cats had time, well, time there as Mike well. also, yeah, yeah, we were, you know, it's, we were all yeah. Um, yes. Mattel electronics people and Mattel people. Yeah, I, I have a. I was going to ask. It was the Sega of Japan management loved to headhunt over at Mattel, huh? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, specifically Tom in terms of it. I was the first Mattel person uh, to come in. Then Paul came in. Then Mike came in, and then Tom came in. So I was the first one there. But I got headhunted uh, okay. and got a phone call and. Went and met a uh, headhunter in, in San Francisco. She got one of these giant camcorders, the one you put on your shoulder and weighs like 20 pounds. <laughs> puts it on a shelf and says, okay, we're ready. And I'm like, for what? And it's like, well, a we're podcast interview. <laughs> we're recording all the interviews and we're sending them to Japan. And then we're going to re-interview the people Japan likes. I guess they like them. So, uh, but it was the uh, first time I ever had that kind of an interview. Okay. So, uh, cool. but uh, yeah, uh, and it was actually at that time, Sega had not decided yet to market the 16-bit system themselves. They were deciding between, do we go, the 8-bit system, Master System had been marketed by Tonka, Tonka. and they were looking, do we market it ourselves that we have to staff up, or do we uh, go with a company, we were in discussions with Atari, and with other companies. And one of the things I had to go and do while I was interviewing was actually put together a proposal for why Sega of America should be in charge of this new system. So I actually had to do a presentation to get my job. Uh, and uh, I guess it worked. There's This is a snowball's chance in hell, I'm sure, but you don't, you didn't save those materials, did you? I, I don't. Uh, I wish. <laughs> uh, you know, I found a lot of stuff on old floppies, but I don't happen to have that one. Okay, so it was a digital. I guess that's worth. My, in my, as you were saying that, I was picturing these. You know, the translucent. Uh, what do you even call? I forget what they're even called now. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, overheads or, or overheads. Yes, oils yeah. or yeah. Uh, no, this was a um, digital auto floppy. Uh, I believe back then, but internally when we make presentations back then, it wasn't digital. It was all, you know, print out the foils and go in from there. The old. Yeah. The OG. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Okay, man. So first day there after you, uh, you know, sell them on it. So I guess maybe did you know before walking in the door day one that you were that they were going to build this internal team and kind of handle this release internally now? Or was yeah, that something the, you decided while you were... No, the decision had already been made. That's yeah. what allowed them to go and hire me because my hiring was dependent upon them yeah. 
going to do it, and otherwise they didn't need marketing. Uh, at Sega at the time, we had a head of sales. Uh, we had a interim president, uh, Mr. Nakajima. Uh, we had a CFO, uh, but that was primarily their handling Tonka interfaces and things like that. So I was kind of the first person that was hired after they went and decided, yes, we're going to go and market it ourselves. So when I came in, my job was get ready and get ready to introduce it. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. But one of my questions right down, not too far down the page here was, was Tonka completely out of the picture then when you walked in the door, basically? Uh, no, they were still in charge of the master system. Okay. We got the marketing rights to the master system back, I believe, in 91. Uh, okay. So. A ways down the road. A ways okay. down the road. Uh, Genesis had been in the marketplace. Uh, so the two products were there. At CES, we wanted uh, Tonka was in our booth. So there was a master system side. There was a Genesis side. But we took back the rights. I believe it was in 91. Okay. Oh man, that had to be crazy. The okay, so that's kind of that, that was kind of blowing my mind a little bit for a lot of the things I was gonna ask. I, I assumed that they were gone. Uh so did you feel that that because so much, you know, the like I'm gonna get into the magazines, the newsletters and stuff, so much of that is obviously at least the latter part of the newsletter, and then Sega Visions is this, you know, it's for the whole company. It's for both systems. So, like, did you, I mean, how much divisiveness or just complications did that create, do you think, for trying to do anything marketing-wise where I'm sure there was pressure to include the master system. They didn't want to abandon it, but you have this, you know, your own objectives and whatever for the Genesis, and you got to get Tonka. I mean, did you have to interface with Tonka in some kind of, I don't know, complicated way to make that all no, happen? No, it wasn't or? a complicated way. When we would go and put things in Sega Visions or we were doing something else, and there wasn't a lot of cross-marketing at that stage. One of my members of my team would go and coordinate with somebody at Tonka. And it's like, uh, and, and a lot of the times, it would be a title that would appear on both systems. So, you know, Sonic, available on the Master System, available on uh, Genesis. Uh, and then Game Gear, so it was just another platform that we would be advertising, but Genesis was still the one that was the advertising dollars were there for. Uh, so it, it wasn't really a problem that was there. Sega of America was also at that time handling the game counselors. So if you had a question on a master system game, you had been calling into the Sega of America offices while Tonka was going to do that. Uh, and that just continued over at, at a Genesis game year, et cetera. Okay. So that that was something that just didn't change. It just expanded. Okay. And how I actually, the last two interviews I did for the pod were two Nintendo game counselors in the early, like they were both started in like 88, 89. So they were in the mm -hmm. early stages of their game counselor program. How big was that operation on this for Sega? Like how many... I think when in 89, we had about a dozen people. Uh, I'm just trying to picture the room. Right. Uh, and then I think 
it may have doubled, but I'm really not sure. Uh, we moved them to our new building, which had a bigger uh, space. So I think we at least doubled the number of game counselors that's there. Uh, and that's a question that I'm going to ask one of them this afternoon. Oh, uh, one I, of the counselors? Yes. Oh, uh, I would love this referral. I would love this referral, Al. If it goes well and you don't hate me at the end. <laughs> uh, but I will, because uh, uh, that's a question I don't have an answer to. Congratulations. There you go. I said I'd get to one. I'd, I'd work hard and find at least one. <laughs> okay. So, well, actually, before I even ask this, what? So you're walking in the door in January of 89. You know, I, and I, as, from my perspective, I've already told you the praise for the Genesis, but the 8-bit era, I mean, to me, in retrospect now for this podcast from a historical perspective, at the time as a kid, anyone who had a master system to me was like, it was like weird. Like, that kid's weird. <laughs> you know, so it was a very, you know, they did not have a good uh, presence in Midwest Ohio, where I grew up at least, and again, even looking at it from a historical perspective now, like what, it looks like such a mess. What, what, what did you think about? Like even those white and blue thatch block uh, box designs with kind of the, the crude illustrations that didn't really represent the games, I don't think was is something I've kind of felt like when you walked in the door in January of 1989, what did you, what was the biggest thing that you were like, this is so broke, I have to fix this first. Like, what was the biggest thing walking in that you focused on? Well, well, the biggest thing was everything from A to Z on marketing because uh, had to get us up to speed. Uh, everything from hiring an ad agency to hiring a PR agency, uh, packaging, picking what products out of the Japan roster to go and bring it to the U.S., getting ready for a uh, sales meeting with five or six of the top retailers in the country that we held at Pebble Beach in, I think, March of 89 as a preview. So had to go put together a presentation, the packaging, the sales materials, and getting ready for that. So it, it was everything from A to Z. And then also hiring more help because uh, I was a one-man band. But the very, very first thing I had to do was the product did not have a name. Oh, we man. couldn't use the Mega Drive name in the U.S. Uh, and Why is that? I, I actually don't know the answer to that, and I have way too much. There, there was something about trademark issues, and uh, it, there, it, there's confusion as to what's going on there. There's a lot of stories, and... Uh, I used to have the materials on that, but I don't anymore. Okay. Uh, but uh, we had a change, and the first time when I came in, there were five names that had been a short list even before I came on. Uh, and there had been packaging. The Genesis Black packaging was already done. Uh, and we had the front covers mocked up. Uh, with the different names, one of them with Genesis and the current logo that's there. Another so Genesis was in that group of five? Genesis was okay. there. Uh, there was one called Cyclone, which was actually the based on the roller coaster at Cody Island. Not sure what that had to do with the video game. Uh, there was one with a fox, but there were five of them. And the 
very first thing I had to go and do was do some quick research with consumers to find out what they were uh, thinking about it. Uh, internally, uh, Genesis was our favorite, uh, but we wanted to go and see what, what consumers did, uh, had to say. And Genesis was their favorite. And it was actually interesting what they were thinking about. A lot of times, you, have, you know, Genesis first book of the Bible. But that was actually number two. The first one was the Genesis project from Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Okay. Oh, man. Focus, focus groups are amazing. <laughs> and, and they loved that and they understood it was a new beginning, which just fit in perfectly. And so that was the, you know, literally the first thing I had to do. Okay. Uh, when I was there, because if we didn't have a name, I couldn't do everything else. Sure. Uh, okay. So yeah. So yeah. Again, like I, that that question was formulated in the idea that Tonka kind of like was cut off then, and you had to like take over a bunch of. But it, I mean, they kept uh, operating autonomously. You were basically yeah starting from scratch. That's you know with your own like nothing to do with fixing anything. That's all yep. the stuff that had happened was not your problem. <laughs> it was a whole new beginning. Right. Okay. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, so they were still, that's, uh, again, I'm, so you were there before Cats. It's wild to me that they were still playing musical chairs with the leadership team going into and after the launch. Like, am I correct in that? Like that, I mean. Mike came in before the launch. And what we had was we had an interim president, uh, yeah. Mr. Nakajima, uh, and his, he was just kind of managing the finances of Sega of America. Didn't have a product. Also, you know, managing the people that were there, the operations, the finance, things like that. But it was a very, very small operation. Uh, so once the uh, decision was going to uh, made to go and uh, have Sega of America take over the 16-bits system, it was, okay, we need to go and staff up. Marketing was one of the things I was, I had been interviewed from probably October of 88. So it was like a four month process. And a lot of it had to be them making the final decision. And then it was, we need to go and get uh, a president. And so uh, that took a few months in terms of uh, talking with Mike, and I don't know who else they had spoken to at the time, sure. uh, but that was being handled by uh, Mr. Nakayama at Sega Japan and David Rosen, who was the founder and chairman of Sega in the U.S. So that was their job was to go and, and hire a president. But it took, I think he arrived around June, so maybe about okay. four months later. Uh, Paul Rio came about two months after me. Uh, so I, it was the start of the Mattel onslaught. Uh, <laughs> so if he comes in in June, you've been working since January. Was there anything notable that he pushed back on that you were already well into that, you know, 
was a speed bump for you and in, in any of the stuff you were trying to institute because you know obviously I mean, he, he's the head honcho he comes in i'm sure he had wanted to put his stamp on it and had his ideas was there anything that was particularly notable for you from 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 him walking in the door uh, not really uh you know it helped me fine tuning the messaging i'm not sure if we had shot the first commercial yet uh i believe we had uh so that was already in the can and you know it was fine tuning you know the the launch plans that were there and you know he he added some things to it uh which was great it, you know it wasn't a speed bump it was just something that kind of came in naturally sure. uh and you know we were speaking the same language uh once again it's that mattel influence so, did, did you did you have any relationship with him pre-existing for mattel or uh i think i actually met him uh not at mattel but when he was at coleco okay uh so uh yeah i i i think when he was there uh he had just left i believe uh, and then he went over, he had been at Coleco for a couple of years before that. So, uh, I knew him from there. Okay. Not well, but I had met him. Okay. The endorsement campaign, the, uh, you know, the, these recognizable faces, the Montana, Riley, Lasorda, et cetera, all the pop culture brands, Spider-Man, Michael Jackson, Dick Tracy, Ghostbusters. I presume if you were there even before Katz, because you know he has a lot of stuff online about him talking about being involved with, with the, those decisions and kind of bringing that to fruition. I assume you were, and at least involved in, if not the catalyst for cooking that plan up. Yes. Uh, it actually started before he came. The it first was uh, Tommy Lasorda for Tommy Lasorda baseball, okay. and Arnold Palmer for Arnold Palmer tournament golf. Uh, so those were launch titles with a celebrity from there. We also had the license to Spider-Man. So that was in development. Uh, and that was a very, very long development from there. Montana came after Mike was on board. And I was the uh, first person who met with uh, Joe's agent uh and it was like who are you you know video games nintendo and that's all it was <laughs> you know why do i want to talk to you and who in the world are you guys and i actually had to fly out to meet him in the delta crowd club at laguardia airport as he was getting ready for a flight okay so i had to go there and so I very very the, welcoming <laughs> yeah, and i had one of the little eight millimeter VCR decks with the portables with the pop-up screen so I could go and show him what the difference between 16-bit and 8-bit was, how realistic, what we wanted to go and do, and that we were serious. Uh, and I guess it worked because it was like, yeah, let's go and, and talk to these guys and uh, see if there's something we could go and do for a, uh, uh, a an endorsement deal. And, so that's history. So you 
So the idea to start doing that, though, when did I guess when did that? When was the what was the seed idea for that? To even for the launch titles, I guess if it was pre-existing to even the launch of the Genesis, when did that happen? And was that you're doing post January '89? I guess I was not heavily. I was in the decision for Lasorda and Arnold Palmer, okay. which were the first two. Spider-Man had already been done, and I believe that it may have been done through Sega Japan with some things from Sega of America. That's a little gray. But I was in on the decision of, you know, who should we go and get? Because we got two sports titles. We want to go and have a uh, a baseball personality, and we wanted to have a golf, because those were our two first sports games. Arnold Palmer was a natural because of awareness at the time. Uh, and then we were looking for a big day from there. And quite honestly, it's a little strange for a San Francisco-based company full of San Francisco Giants <laughs> to go Dodgers, yeah. going to Tommy Lasorda. But he was the natural choice. Uh, David Rhodes, our VP of sales, had, had a in on some sports endorsements uh, People, and so he went. And once we had decided on uh, Losorda and Arnold Palmer, he went and did the negotiations for that. When Joe came around, once again, it was a group decision, uh, and Mike was on board at that time because uh, it was we knew that was going to be a much bigger cost to us from a, a standpoint because. Just he was Joe, uh, and uh, you know. So uh, I started the ball rolling, as I said, at the Delta Crowd Club. Got that, and then he wanted to. He understood who we were, uh, and we started negotiations. And I believe Mike was involved in the negotiations at that time. Um, the, the ticket price all, of that, I'm sure. Because <laughs> we were all playing a different role. You know, my job was selling, here's why you need to go with Genesis. Here's why we're the real deal. And you have to remember, Sega with the master system had, a, in the U.S., a 5% market share. That other company had 95%. And, you know, so it, it was a whole different uh thing we had to go and educate people and it was everybody that we talked to from companies we wanted to license uh from whether it was properties movies comic books uh from endorsement deals with sports people with advertising companies because we wanted to go and do partnerships you know one of them i remember going to a major uh tv network and you know, say, here's the plan and here's what we're going to go and do. And we want to be the leader in uh, this new generation of video games. And we want to work with you on this promotional deal. And we put out a deal. And a few years later, I met him and I said, he said, you know, uh, when you were uh, talking to us way back when, he goes, I remember exactly what you were saying. And I just thought you were full of it. There's no way you're going to be able to achieve that. But you guys did. I said, told you so. <laughs> um, and so, but it was a, it was an education 
uh, every you know part of the business that we had to go on. The press uh, had to go and educate. The financial analysts had to go and educate them and say, why uh, is this company, why is Sega, this small little company, going to go and you know be a player in this business? So that was a major education effort that we had to go and do. So it, it was an interesting 1989. The other thing is, we had a competitor in the marketplace in 16-bit, and that was NEC and TurboGrafx. And I, I mentioned that we, in I think it was March, went to Pebble Beach and met with five or six of the major retailers to show them what we were going to do and explain, and here's the wonderful brochures, and here's our packaging, and here's our plan. And one of the uh, major retailers, after we did the presentation, what it said, I like you guys, and you know I'll, I'll carry you, but NEC is going to eat your lunch because they got this great video and this super fancy brochure. And so I'm going to carry you and I'm going to carry them, but just let it be known that on December 26th, I'm sending back everything that I have left over of you guys because NEC will be the winners. Yeah. And guess who got sent back on December 26th? Yeah, what was the what was the internal perspective of the Turbo Graphics pre pre that Christmas when you really I guess get the defining word on it? What was your internal view of the the Turbo Graphics? You know, I had known about it for several years because they had been shopping the product around, kind of like Sega was doing, you know, do you want to be marketing this? And NEC was doing the same thing. They finally decided to go and market it themselves. We thought that we had a better system. We thought that visually, when you look at it, it was going to go and be better. Uh, and so we were very- Certainly good. had a better price point. <laughs> uh, they were, we, we were, 189, they were 199. So it was a $10 difference at the time. Uh, their games uh, were so, they were like 70, 70 bucks a pop for those too, though. Yeah, might have, might have been, I, I don't yeah. remember. But, uh, and I, I knew uh, their head of marketing uh, who had been, you know, involved with Atari uh, when I had was dealing with Atari in the early 80s, uh, in the 2600 days. Uh, so, you know, it was just like, let's go out there. Let's go and put our best foot forward. We announced that we were going to go and launch on August 15th. And then a week later, we're going to launch on August 15th. And we decided to go and launch on August 14th because of that. But we learned that any time we would announce something, a week or two later, they would announce the same thing. So they were responding to us competitively and our products hadn't even launched yet. Mm -hmm. So that was great. So it was like we held back what we were going to go and do. So let them just keep running after us and following us. And we just go on and execute our plan. Uh, so it made it very, very easy. We had great advertising. We had great product. I think we had slightly better retail presence than them. Uh, but I don't remember exactly uh, who it was, except for this one retailer who 
uh, thought they were going to be number one and we were going to be number zero. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I can tell you, much like I said about the the eight bit, the master system, in the sixteen bit era, it was a, almost as weird to have a TurboGrafx sixteen. <laughs> Maybe even more so, to be honest with you. It, you know, it, <laughs> I, I have nothing bad. It was a good system. You know, it was it was there, uh, but I just believed in what our product was, and I believed in the capabilities uh, of our product development people to bring out some great games. Uh, and you just keep, kept seeing the games getting better and better as they're learning more about what the system could go and do. Sure. And the best example of that is, you know, Sonic. Uh, the first time I saw Sonic in development was uh, when I was in Japan and went into one of the R&D labs and on two monitors, there was a wireframe of this thing going through the loop-to-loop at the Green Hill Zone. And the next to it was a still image of the Green Hill Zone in all of its beautiful colors and things like that. And the speed was amazing. It's like, really, you're being able to go and do that? Yeah, and I said, can you go and actually uh, get that same speed by going and putting it into these wonderful graphics? And they said, don't worry about it. And this is uh, a knock aside. We're going to go and be able to do it. And sure enough, uh, a few weeks later, we get a EPROB from Japan with the first level of Sonic complete. And I just I just want to make it very clear, <laughs> Al. You brought that up, not me. I want I want that on record. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I told you, I. There's nothing that you could go and not make me say about Sonic. Because it, it was a defining moment for sure. us. I agree. You I know, mean, like, I can tell you that I, I remember I, I, very viscerally the moment I first saw it. You know, I can remember what house I was. I mean, I was in fourth grade, I think, so 10 years old. And I can remember the system being turned on. I can remember watching, yes, go him go through loop-de-loops for the first time and... There's not a lot of video game moments that are so seminal to me in my mind from my childhood. <laughs> well, that was the way for me. I came home from Japan and, you know, at our first senior staff meeting the next day, and I said, you aren't going to believe what I saw. I just start <laughs> telling them about this and I don't have any pictures and things like that. And it's that weird hedgehog guy that we had seen, you know, seven months ago and shows him over the, uh, the egg character. And I just kept talking about it. And Shinobu Toyota and Paul uh, Rio and Tom Kalinske are all going, if Al is saying this is great, we got to see it. When can we go and see it? Because they had never heard me rave about a product so much. And when we got it in, they understood what it was. And you know, then once we had the development and we were keeping it back, holding it for the launch of uh, the Super NES uh, as our surprise against them. You know, it's like, Al, I believe you, this is going to be so great, you know, compared to Super Mario World, but can you go and prove it? And so we went to, uh, did some more playtesting uh, around the country where we brought in uh, Super Famicom systems because Super NES wasn't out yet in the U.S., but same software, and had those with Super Mario World and Sega Genesis with Sonic. They both were in Japanese, so they received these. 
the people who we were showing it to had never seen either system. Well, they had seen the Genesis because uh, that was out. And I wanted to go and make sure that we really could go and convince Nintendo owners. So I had, I think it was 75 or 80 percent of the people we tested with not only be Nintendo lovers, but Mario had to be one of their top three favorite games. So I was stacking the deck in their favor. I was crazy, but yeah. And <laughs> what happened was we would let them go and play both games. Half of them we started with Sonic, half of them started with Mario, and you know, then they split. And the uh, choice was Sonic the Hedgehog over Mario. And it was like 85, 90% were choosing Sonic over Mario. And the biggest group were the Mario lovers. So it's that, like. That, that had to feel good. Everybody, you know, Tom and Chernobyl and Paul and the rest of them kind of breathed a sigh of relief. I said, told you. you know, <laughs> I, I just, I, I knew what we had. Uh, and I knew the impression it could make, not just from seeing it, but putting the control in your head and going through the Green Hill Zone. Feeling, feeling that speed, uh, yeah, no question. And it was like, we knew that's there. And uh, based on that, it was like, let's go and uh, really take it to the next level, even though we were not at the next level. Uh, Jerry's, uh, welcome to the next level at this time. Let's do something nice for Nintendo. Let's launch Super Nintendo for them before they ever did it. So uh, starting at E3, we had uh, two monitors, and one was uh, Super Mario World on Super Famicom and Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, and when you looked at them, just played on the demos uh, screens, Sonic was just so much more vibrant, so much faster, and it was like, which is the difference? That's very and then power move, power time move for sure. <laughs> one uh, uh, reporter from a uh, major magazine, not, not even a gaming magazine, a major general interest magazine, had just come from the Nintendo press conference where they introduced Super NES, and he comes up to me goes. Super Nintendo has 256 colors. You only have 64. And they were just playing back everything that Nintendo had just told them, you know. And, you know, they've got the faster processor that's there. And I didn't say a word. I just went and, you know, pointed, follow me. And I walk them over to the booth to the two monitors that were playing the ones. And I go, which one has 256 colors? And he looked at him and then just quietly walked away. <laughs> you know, he, he knew it was there. Nice, nice. You know, and then we took it to consumers. So that summer, we went out to shopping malls around the country, uh, introducing Sonic and uh, letting people play. We had a stage, and on the stage, we had monitors. Half of them were playing Sonic the Hedgehog. Half of them were playing uh, Super Mario. That's there. And we invited people to come up 
and play both of them. And they had, once again, never seen them because Super Nintendo wasn't going to be out for another two and a half months. And then we asked them to go and vote for which one was their preference. And, you know, I had journalists go and say, oh, you're going to just stuff the ballot box. I said, you want to be the judge? Come on out. And you could go and count the ballots and you could go and watch it. And, you know, we're confident. And we started in Seattle. We were, I think, five miles from Nintendo's headquarters. <laughs> we had the head of marketing come and visit, uh, didn't enter our space, but looked down. We had Nintendo game counselors uh, come. And the highest preference for Sonic over Mario was in Seattle. And so it was just... Yeah. Too much fun. Yeah, too much yeah. fun. Yeah. Okay, so I'm well, talking well, Sonic. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say, yeah, let's let's uh, I know you're jamming on Sonic there, but let's spin back a little bit. I want to ask, can you recall the first time that you heard someone say the phrase Genesis does what Nintendo don't and what your initial response to it? <laughs> and or was it coming out of your mouth? <laughs> uh, the first time was a little background. We wanted an ad campaign that uh, showed the difference between Nintendo and Genesis. Uh, and we really wanted to go and let people know, and this was 8-bit uh, Nintendo because 16-bit was still a year away. And we wanted to let people know and see for themselves the difference between these two systems and why they should go and do that. So we uh, had our ad agency, Bozell, tasked with develop a commercial to go and accomplish that. Fast forward a couple of weeks, we're down in LA, and it's myself, it's Dave Rhodes, it's David Rosen, and they're presenting us a storyboard. And they're telling us there's going to be a song, and they tell us what the lyrics of the song are, Genesis does, 16-bit graphics, Genesis does, sports, just uh, describes that. It shows us the visuals. Here's Joe Montana. Here's Michael Jackson. Here's other games. Uh, going back between those. And it comes to the end of the commercial. And then it goes, and then the announcer goes and says, and they take up a storyboard that they had hidden and put it up in front of us. Genesis does what Nintendo don't. And we like all fell on the floor. <laughs> Are you kidding? And it was like, we just loved it. And it was like fabulous. And so they sold us. That was there. Uh, you know, and then they created the, the wonderful jingle or made the jingle come to life because the words and music had already been good. And so we were very, very happy. And then we started putting it out there and running it with a, with a large uh, TV campaign upon it. And then also a uh, three-page magazine ad. The first page was What's Right Behind You, Genesis Does. And then the second one was 
what Nintendo and that it showed all we, games. We, we, we got like they're in every issue of Game Pro and obviously every issue of your, your guys' proprietary things. And we every time we get them, it's it's one of, they're one of the fun, you know, just because they're so epic. And I can even see it's funny you talk about NEC chasing your tail on on some of this stuff, your guys' tail, not their own. You can see their ads, which come in later after the start. Mm-hmm. 100% modeled after after that genesis those large genesis spreads just in vibe the way yeah the way they're like i don't know just very in your face with both the text and the pictures it's just it 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 feels very you know almost i i, I wouldn't be surprised if it was the same damn marketing firm <laughs> it, it, it was a different marketing firm but they were following what we were doing because yeah. we were getting traction in retail and we were getting traction with uh consumers and we were outselling them uh, and as I said, we didn't look at, you know, what they were doing so, uh, to go and say, yeah, we're, we need to outmarket them on that. We just went full ahead on what it was and what we had to go and do to make a difference in the marketplace. You know, and so they followed us. And then, you know, later on when we did the uh, welcome to the next level ads, could be Silver State Partners, you even saw Nintendo start changing their ads to be a little cooler. So we were we were setting, you know, the standard for how you go and talk to people out there. And it was a great time. Sure, sure. You know, we started to talk a little bit about the magazine stuff there. That is actually, I, I have a whole kind of segment on that. You come in the door in 89 and they have this newsletter that they have been trying to, it's obvious, kind of like we were just talking about NEC chasing Sega, it's obvious Sega is chasing Nintendo's Fun Club News newsletters, at least in my opinion, I guess I could, you know, tell me if I'm wrong about that, but they're chasing the Nintendo Fun Club news, newsletters with with their own newsletters, and then eventually, obviously, Sega Vision's trying to match Nintendo Power uh, as an internal marketing tool. What were your thoughts on those newsletters and how much of a hand did you have in their demise? Looking at the timeline, it seems awfully likely slash obvious. <laughs> uh, well, there was one thing I loved about their newsletters, and that was their mailing list. Of Sega Master System owners, people who love Sega Master System, who owed it. And that was our first audience to go and get because they knew us, they loved us in focus groups, they uh, even focus groups where we would go and, and have both Nintendo and, and Sega oh, Master System owners in the same focus group. We could go and tell who was the Sega Master System owners uh, because they were able to go and say what was so great about the games uh, and why they made the choice to go and choose Sega Master System over the other system. And they were people who wanted, you know, Sega to go and prove that their investment was great and we had the next system for them. So we had that mailing list and we wanted to go and be able to go and tell people about who we are, what we are, and what all of our great games were. And, you know, doing that. Also, at the same time, we did something which Blake has called our... Uh, most important worst selling product or something like that, which was the power base converter, which was a plug-in to the Genesis system, 
which allowed you to play the Sega Master System games. So we shut, exactly, shut all those parents up. <laughs> that, that exactly right. And, you know, when we saw uh, Nintendo not having any backward compatibility, we knew that that was going to go and be a major uh, sticky point from them, from parents. What do you mean? You've got 48 big, you know, NES games here. And I went and spent all this money on that. And now you want. It's now you're going to take a video game exchange and trade them for one game. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we heard it from kids. We heard it from parents. And it was loud and clear. And once we went and said, hey, we've got this little power based converter. And it really was probably our worst selling product. But promotionally, it was our most important one. Uh, they call that they call that a loss leader. <laughs> a loss leader, but in kind of a different way. Sure. But it, it it just went and made them happy to know it was a satisfaction that Sega cared about what parents said and what parents invested in. We were the nice guys. And we were. So no, no, nothing in that explanation said anything about the content in those newsletters, by the by. <laughs> so I, I wanted I wanted to utilize their uh, thing. So I don't remember what the first thing was that we sent out to them. I think uh, it might have been our precursor to Sega Visions, which was maybe a newsletter that folded up. You you have probably. Uh, the originals. It may have had on one side our poster with all of the games. Uh, maybe I'm, wait, I'm wait, just are you remember. sorry? Sorry to interrupt. But are you saying that you did you release something prior to the first Sega Visions that wasn't in? Because they they had seven of those newsletters that were like official. That the team said, well, they changed the name a bunch of times. Team Sega newsletters. They they. A few different names. I, I believe we I believe we we did do something early on and it may have been tied into what they were doing. Man, I gotta find that. <laughs> I I like it out on that one. Okay. Okay, so that's question two. I don't know. So doing a good job. <laughs> uh, we knew that what we wanted to go and do was to have a full-fledged magazine. And we knew that we wanted rather than selling a subscription. We wanted to consider it a marketing expense and send it out to everybody because we had to make our name known. We had to make uh, why we were cool, what our great products were that were here now and were coming up. Uh, and so, excuse me, that's what led us to say divisions. Okay. So would you say that, that cause so just to give you the timeline of this, maybe it'll be mildly helpful. So the, the, like I said, they had seven of those newsletters and the last one, the cover timestamp is December 89. And that's eight months after issue six, the one prior to it being April of 89. So I think there were only two in 89, which would have been while you were at Sega still. And they both had a feel, particularly that seventh one, of this is on the way out the door, just in the content of them, you know, so they Genesis felt. Genesis wasn't in there. This was uh, I, I I believe it was mentioned very briefly in issue seven, the last one. Maybe all there was something on Altered Beast, if I'm recalling off the top of my head. It's been a while since we we actually went through those, but 
Yeah, it was definitely still Master System focused. So I bet it was entirely a Tonka Endeavor yeah, then. I, I would probably yeah. agree with that. And it was 89. Genesis was, you know, in the marketplace. We were spending a ton of money. Uh, and I think they were just winding down their marketing. So you just had, you had nothing to do with those at all then, really. <sighs> you know, I think... I know we talked to them about getting their mailing list, but I don't think we went and said, you know, let's throw something in. And it was okay. uh, happy. That. So okay. that's interesting here. Okay, cool. I saw an interview with Katz where he is quoted with saying, I remember that it was a pain in the ass to edit and publish it. And it was hard to get people to work on it. And this is in regards to Sega visions. Did you want to work on it? <laughs> well, the the first thing that we did, because we knew it was going to be time-consuming, uh, we knew it was going to go and, and be a lot of effort, was I went and looked for an outside group to go and handle all of the editorial, the publishing, everything from A to Z. Kind of as a turnkey, we would say, we want you to go and feature these products, and gave their person uh, who was... Uh, doing the right primary writing on it, access to the various people at Sega. And so we hired the communique group out of Boston uh, to go and do, they ran Sega Visions for us. So we didn't have a lot to go and do with the exception of going and saying, here's what we want to do and giving people access to it. So it really wasn't that big okay. a deal. So, it, it, so it, it was, the it big was deal was paying the bill. Right, yeah. uh, so it was, it was never, out of my marketing budget. It was never an internal endeavor at all then? I don't believe so. I think that when we did the full-size Sega Visions, the look and feel was something that was developed by the communicate group. Okay. Uh, you can look on, on the masthead of the first issue and see if it's if I'm correct. But I don't remember us going to doing actual editorial work. An okay. actual editorial. We may have, as I said, done something where we had sent out some kind of flyer before that around the launch of Genesis. Our biggest selling piece was the poster that came in the cartridge boxes. Those are cool. And the first one had altered. Those are cool for Nintendo and Genesis. They're like the, some of the favorite memories it of was. gamers. Ever. You know, yeah. and you turn it on the back, and here's our game catalog. And that's how everybody knew, you know, here's what the screens look like. Picture tells a thousand words. And here's, you know, a few copy lines. And so... You know, people were having them framed, and every about six months, we would go and change the posters, so we were featuring a new game on one side, and then updating the catalog back on, on the backing one. Uh, so we may have done something like that uh, early on, because we wanted, as we said, our best first customers, who were master system owners, to know what we've got, to drool over the games, something that they could go and show their parents about. There's the power-based converter in the ad. 
also Segatelogenesis, which was our motive, which never came out. But uh, I, I believe we did something along those lines okay. uh, prior to Sega Visions. Okay. So in that the first issue, you and Bob Harris are listed at the top of the masthead as the, the publishers. Who wrote the copy in that first letter? It's signed by both of you. It's like a... It was, it was done by the Communique group. Okay. Uh, they wrote the letter. We went and edited the letter. You know, is this something that we're going to go and say? Bob had probably the day-to-day working on the magazine. I would go and say, you know, here's what we're going to be featuring at that time. Here's what we want to go and do. And he handled the day-to-day editorial work uh, with the community group. Okay, okay. So I, I have two... That's a little bit of a surprise to hear. I thought, because I, 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 going ahead in the timeline here a little bit, the magazine publishing gets handed over to IDG in 92, which produces GamePro, so a different publisher. And I always knew, you know, that's easily found. I've never seen anything about anyone else handling it prior to that. So I assume this was all internal stuff for the early issues of the mag up until 92. And no, they, well, they... Up until 92 was the communicator. Right, right, right. So I don't know if you'll have to answer these questions, basically, is ultimately what I'm saying there. Uh, but I have, there's two content things in those early issues of the mag, the first three in particular that we've covered to date. There's the Game Doctor segment, like the Q&A. Do you remember what this is? Do you have any? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the Game Doctor was. <sighs> I'm going to ask who it is. Do you know who it is? That's incredible. That I, I he's no longer with us, unfortunately. He passed okay. away at, at too early an age. He was one of the original game journalists with Video Games Magazine with Artie Katz and his wife and this gentleman who had gone by the name The Game Doctor in his regular thing. I dug dug tirelessly trying to find any connection to who he might have been. Or the game doctor being like a persona, and, 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 and I couldn't find anything. <laughs> if you search for Artie Katz and okay. uh, Video Game Magazine and look at the mastheads there uh, of Video Game Magazine, he will be listed. Okay, very uh, cool, very cool. But they had communicate hired him because he knew games as the game doctor answering questions as well as also heading out editorial. Okay, and probably and by the end answering the eternal oh, questions okay. here, Al. Here, <laughs> answering eternal questions. Yeah. Uh, cool, cool. Uh, the other one I have is Niles Nemo, that comic character. Was that uh, a formulation of the marketing uh, or the the publishing group? Or was that something, or at least did you, you know, what was the back and forth about making that? I'm sure there was some level of like proposal and, and selection on your guys' behalf for who would be this kind of character for you? I don't think the idea came from us. I think the idea for a character came from the Communique group. I think the working on Niles Nemo uh, and the David, I believe we were involved. Uh, And it might have been some of our people had a product development uh, or our game counselors and things like that. So I believe it may have been a co-development and 
I when I saw it, it was kind of a, a finished piece. I don't know if Niles was supposed to be a takeoff on me because I'm a Dulcet, Dulcet and Niles. Okay. Uh, I never made that connection even. So that's... It, it, and I think at the time it may have been, as I said, a takeoff on me. Uh, I think more than a probability than not. But it, it was just a, a, a nice additional element to Sega Visions. Sure. Okay. When it, when it gets handed off to IDG in 92, who I don't even know, you know, this is me drawing maybe uh, excessive through lines on things, but John Sauer, does John that name mean anything to you at all? John sure. Sauer? Okay, well, sure. Well, John, John had been with Tonka. Right, right. Uh, and he was the marketing director on Tonka okay. in the 8-bit days. Yeah, he was in the newsletters a lot, too. So he, he was had in a the few, newsletters because yeah. he was... He was there Al. Right. Uh, so I'm assuming his that connection is how this even came to be. Well, you know, we do John uh, for various things. And uh, I guess we were looking for somebody to fill a particular role as the newsletter changed over. Bob Harris, I believe, had a relationship with him because uh, Bob had a relationship going back to the Tonka days, even though he came in after I was there, but he had Sega experience. So I believe he was the one during the IDG changeover who got John involved. Okay. Just kind of in summation about, especially those early days in the magazine before, you know, once IDG takes over, which is a huge kerfuffle for the podcast, by the way, I kind of explained to you how GamePro acts, acts as our like third party objective view on this landscape when i found out after we've been doing the podcast for a few years that game pro and sega visions are eventually under the same umbrella you know later on down the line it was a, it's a huge conflict of interest in my opinion <laughs> that our third party objective publisher is also working on the sega magazine now we have to change things up when we get to that part of the timeline i think we gotta we gotta switch game pro out for EGM or something, I don't know. <laughs> Just to keep it objective, I, you know. And I, and I don't know what the division of labor was in terms of was there a dedicated group that was being handled, uh, Sega Visions? Uh, was there a co-mingling? I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, Pat Farrell was the publisher and it was over that. Uh, McDermott, why can't I think of her first name? who was the editor-in-chief. Don't know if she was working on both of them at the time. Uh, one of the good things about it was, starting off, they were one exit away on the freeway from us. So it made for very easy coordination as opposed to dealing somebody in Boston, yeah. country in Boston. I, I hear that for sure. Okay, well, that's you know, even 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 with that, maybe uh, maintain a little bit of gray area to it. I think to maintain our journalistic integrity, we're still going to swap it out when we get to ninety two. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, ultimately, yeah, what I was getting at there was the. But Game Pro, you know, I, it's there were three main magazines: Game Pro, Video Games, and Computer Entertainment, and EGM. Right. All with very very different audiences, all with a different editorial slant, and so wherever you were falling in the spectrum of demographically and psychographically, that's what magazine was yours. And that's why we were in all of them, because they each had 
very, very distinct audiences. Really interesting. There were sub crossovers between the two where people would buy two. I'm sure there were people who bought all three of them, but there were very different audiences. Races, that's EGM was very, very hardcore. GamePro was a very, very family-friendly one. It was just a wonderful one. And Electronic Games and Computer Entertainment was kind of the old stalwart. They had been in the video game magazine going way, way back. Uh, in fact, my, my first meeting with any journalist when I joined with them was meeting with Andy Eddy from Video Games and Computer Entertainment but three different magazines, and they all deserve their due. Okay. And I understand you wanting to be pure, but, <laughs> I but I, they do have, I think you're you're missing out if you don't include all three. It's, oh man, I'll have having three, Pat, I did my five job. magazines. You're trying to kill me here with workload? <laughs> three magazines already is a lot, uh, meaning Sega Visions and Center Power and Gabe Bro. If we add two more, we're never going to get anywhere, timeline-wise. <laughs> well, but yeah, I hear you. Nintendo, I hear you. Nintendo Power was, you know, an interesting magazine because Nintendo Power was a something that helped us dramatically with the press because getting early stuff out of Nintendo was almost impossible. And it always premiered in Nintendo Power. Sure. At the magazines didn't like that. They didn't want to go and be, you know, second to it. And when Sega came on, you know, and here is our mortal enemy, they were more than happy to go and promote Genesis because we would go and work with them. We would go and get the product. We would do interviews. We would go and get them previews and things like that. So we were the good guys to them. Same thing with the retailers. Nintendo had very, very strict rules. You never knew how much inventory you were going to go and get. So that was there. And it filtered down with promotional partners and things like that. So we were kind of wearing the white hats. And we were getting people who wanted to see us succeed because of how they were being treated by the other guy. That's cool. You mentioned... so. That's it. So we with GamePro specifically because we're going through them every month. In the Genesis previews, this is this is this is a perfect example of one of those incredibly obscure things that I you would only get if you're reading every single one of these magazines. Uh, but as far as questions go, but with the Genesis previews, they never have the MSRPs at the end. It always says that we don't know the prices, and to us, this is always read like again Genesis and Sega trying to get their act together. <laughs> uh, coming out of those Tonka years and moving into the Genesis years. But they never have the MSRPs. They always have them for the NEC games. They always have them for Nintendo games. They never have the Genesis MSRPs in GamePro. At the end, you know, when they do a review, there'll be like a two-page deal. And at the very end, it'll tell you the MSRP for the game. And I was just curious if that was something, I don't know, that even made it on your radar, I guess. Like I said, it's a highly obscure question, but I'm just curious if you have any thought on that at all. Because it was the only system where we see it, and it's chronic, I feel. Systemic and chronic, chronic. And I, I don't know if that's because, like, I thought maybe it was a, a, a decision based because they are going to be a little bit more expensive than NES games, you know, and even though they're better, they're deservedly so. But just on paper, we've always kind of hypothesized that you have parents who don't have any understanding of the difference in quality 
and it's just literally a cost-based thing. And do you make that as an internal decision? Like, just don't put the prices because then they, they'll get to the store at least. <laughs> uh, I don't think we gave out prices okay. on our software. Um, okay, well, We wanted to answer. sell you on why this is a must-have game. And so reading about it in GamePro, looking at it on the back of the Sega uh, posters, we wanted to sell you on, here's why the game is cool. The price is secondary. You know, once you went into Babbage's or Toys R Us, that's when you found out what the price was. And, and we had different prices. Uh, a lot of it was determined based upon the meg size of the game, uh, you know, two bag, four bag, eight bag, you know, eventually we got up to 24 bag. And depending on how big the ROM was, it cost more. Sure. And so naturally we charged more. There were some games that we thought were just a great game uh, and what, and Sonic 2. We established a whole new price point just for Sonic 2 that because it was a game that you had to go and have. It was the game you wanted to go and have uh, and be able to do that. So we, I don't, I don't believe we went and put out, even in our press releases, I could be wrong, the oh, MSRPs. Okay. And also, you know, the retailers, you know, determined what their prices were, I think, on our price sheets to the retailers that might have had a suggested retail price, but you know they decide what they want to go and sell it for, but it wasn't what, they, what the margins were. Okay. Uh, but I don't believe it was a press-based thing. The only thing I know that we put prices on was the console itself, especially because the console pricing became a war. We went from 189 to 149 to 129, to the core system in 99 and it was going back and forth as nintendo super nes was coming on and you know they were doing pricing decisions we had already made the pricing decision and so that was the thing that we talked about price on okay so close out the magazine stuff just kind of from like an emotional perspective maybe were did that magazine become what you wanted it to be? Just did it? Did it become what you want? I mean, did, did I mean? Obviously, it's a sales tool, but like from a, I don't know. Did you even pick them up? And the, I'm sure you did. You're the marketing lead, so you this has to be of concern for you. But you know, just picking a Nintendo Power up and a Sega Visions up after the magazines are both developed things, you know, I don't know, 91, 92, maybe once it's in IDG's hands, whatever it might be, just were you, was it what you thought it was going to be when you guys created the the project or the, uh, had the inclination to make a magazine? <laughs> I, I think it checked off the objectives we had for it when we went and started it. One of the things we had talked about was, is there a way we can go and turn this into a subscription-based product because it was expensive. It was expensive to produce, you know, quality of the paper, mailing this thing out to our mailing list, 
for free, it was taking a, a good chunk of change that was coming out of my marketing budget. So, you know, definitely a marketing expense that I would have liked to have the money back from, but we wanted some time. Is there a way when we have built the Genesis business to start changing it into a uh, advertising based product and a subscription based product? Because it, it did to, make I, I'm pretty sure I was. We I, started I, getting advertising in and we started getting third parties in, but it wasn't, it could have been more in terms of it. And I think when, when Mike was talking about the time it took and things like that, I mean, it might have been part of, you know, here is, we want to go and change what we were doing. And that made it, that was, uh, that was a challenge for us because it's hard to go and say, hey, all you loyal people who we've been sending this to for free. Pay for it now, yeah. Give us money and how do we go and make the product? Yeah, I don't think I got wind of it until the first issue I remember having was the Street Fighter 2 one. And I think that was, I might have bought that in a store and then I subscribed to it off that, if I recall, you know, again, childhood timeline stuff. So yeah, it wasn't something I was even aware of when I was getting into the Genesis. So I didn't, I wasn't getting those free ones, you know, I don't think. Uh, I think even from day one, if you look at the first issue, we do have a price on it. You do, it. yep, 350 yep. And part of that, well, we didn't have any retail distribution selling that. But when you go and get something and it's like, wow, this is 350 and they're sending it to me for free. Sure. Wow, those Sega guys are great. Has, hashtag, hashtag marketing, Al. Hashtag marketing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Perceived value is always important. Of course. Okay. Enough magazine stuff. Thank you for, for uh, humoring me on all that uh, highly obscure Not a problem. line of questioning. The... It kind of sounds like it was the case, but you did know Kalinsky from Mattel to some degree or another? Yes. Okay. Copy that. And what would you say, I don't have a ton on him, but what would you say was the biggest difference between Katz's approach to the business and Kalinsky's approach? Katz certainly had more video game experience, Coleco, Atari, et cetera. So I would think there would be at least some like kind of, I don't know, technology, technologically fueled well, approach differences. We were not a technological company. We were not going at selling horsepower. We went and talked about what was there for, there are people who want horsepower, but then Super NES came in and it's the 512 colors versus 64. And we don't go and match the horsepower on a lot of things that were there. But we'll go head to head on the games. And that's what people want. You know, the name of the game is the game. And, you know, you're not buying a product, a cartridge, because it's got four meg versus two meg. Because the system has 512 colors. You're buying it because of the experience you're going to have. Either your perceived experience from when you go into Toys R Us and you pull up the little thing and you look at the back of the box, 
back of the box is the Noble Wood Cell, well, the co-Noble Wood Selling feature, because when you enter to Toys R Us and you see the wall of all those placards with the front box, we had to go and catch your eye immediately with the art uh, that's there. And we want you to go up and flip it up so you can read the back side. And there are three carefully chosen screenshots. And we spent a lot of time choosing screenshots that made us look best. Uh, and we, when we do the game episodes, we hyper-focus on the screenshots yeah. so much. We talk about them so yeah. much on the podcast, too. So well, that's cool it, to hear. It's, it, it was a, it's a very important thing because that's a picture, you know, it was worth a thousand words. And then the copy that is on the back. For each of our games, I wanted to have three key bullet points of things that every single person who finds out about this game needs to know about. And that's what I had my product managers do. What are the three things that are special from this game? And those are the things that then would go and translate into both the screenshots that we wanted to show and uh, the copy that we had. So that was a very, very important part of marketing because taking out your wallet is at point of sale. And that's where the decision, you might go and say, I want XYZ game. And if it's not a Sega game, if it's from a third party, we, I love my third parties. I want you to buy my third parties, but I want you to buy my game first. But, and I want you to buy my game over that other system that's there. So that was, that was where, you know, that's kind of where there was, I don't want to call it a war, but that's where there's a major decision to be made by the consumer. Uh, it might be the kid going into the Toys R Us, looking at the different things, and then going home and saying, Bob, Dad, I want this. And here's why. And here's why it's great. Here's, and they come up with whatever works best for convincing their parents. We don't have to go and do that. <laughs> they do it great on their own because they know what their parents, what will get their parents to say yes. Sure. Or sometimes, they're with their parents uh, and they're looking forward and that say, you know, can I have this? Can I spend my money on this? So that retail, uh, that's the last mile. And, you know, that's the most important. That little plaque or that game box in a Babbage's is the most important marketing vehicle. That we is have. that answer to suggest that Kalinsky and Katz saw that differently? No, no, okay. No, you know, it's one thing that uh, the toy business is, is, is about packaging. And whether it's Barbie or Hot Wheels or uh, Toe Jam and Earl, it's the same type of thing in terms of how you want to go and get uh, a sale in retail and be able to go and push things. So there, there was a uh, definite packaging first thing that was there. Tom looked at packaging, I think, the final packaging, maybe a little bit more than, than Mike did, but maybe not by much. And 
my team, I think we were doing a good deal in terms of here's what we want to go and do to make the thing sell. And I think that, you know, the big thing that Tom wanted to do, Tom's strategy, his four points, if you've read Console Wars, lower the price, uh, include Sonic in the hardware, start US product development. So there were major strategic issues and Tom had the ability to go and get Sega Japan to allow us to do that stuff. That was the major difference in terms of Tom coming on board. It wasn't like Mike and I hadn't said before, we need to go down 149. We need to include a better game. Uh, And this was even pre-Sonic, but especially on the price. But Tom was more more, more emphatic about it. That that, that track's funny because literally the last Cats thing I read where I plucked that that quote about the magazine, he, the tonality when discussing Sega of Japan, and maybe this is a little bit of a product of, you know, thinking about and hearing about it. Maybe it's kind of like, as opposed to him having a philosophical uh, opinion like the, or, or perspective at the time, it's more so one that's developed in hindsight because of maybe this just, I don't know, whatever, o- over time. But the he the tonality of it was very much that he wasn't worried about Sega of Japan. And he was just kind of, he had a plan, he was doing his own thing, and his interfacing with Sega of Japan was secondary slash almost non-existent. So that, and this likes to this kind of coming out of his own mouth, so it kind of tracks very well with what you're <laughs> what you're well, describing there. You know, and, and I I think that you know it. The big difference was the price. We couldn't get the price changed if there was anything that was there. The other important thing was Shinobu Toyota, who was our executive vice president, who was hired by Sega of Japan to come into Sega of America. And he was the day-to-day interface on things that needed to be explained, questioned, asking for approval of those things. He was talking with Naki Al-Masad daily, every other day. And so he was uh, probably the biggest day-to-day of taking what uh, we wanted, including what Mike, excuse me, needed, and communicating it with Sega Japan. So Shinobu was was such a integral part of the business. Uh, And that relationship even included, you know, once Tom came on board. Do you think uh, Tom had a better just rapport with him? I, I can't judge that. I, I I don't remember the day-to-day between Mike and Shinobu. Uh, I don't think there was any problems, any enmity or anything like that. There was, between Tom and Shinobu, a symbiosis, for want of a better term, in terms of they worked very well together in terms of we need to do this. How do we accomplish this with getting 
Sega Japan to approve. What do we need to do? How do we approach them? You know, and you know, one of the examples that's in console wars was we would go and do a TV ad and we would put it on the air before Sega Japan got a copy. And they could go and veto that was there. And so what we would go and do is we planned our advertising. So the first two weeks were at very, very high frequency levels and spent a lot of money. And it was called a rolling thunder approach. And then as you got to week three and four, it reduced. And then the thunder clap is further in the distance and it get reduced and that's there. And if Sega Japan went and said, hold it, stop. It's too late anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got the bulk of the advertising. We got the bulk of the impressions. We had gotten the impression in people's minds within those first two weeks. So, you know, it, that was one of the strategic things that was there. Okay. But it, Tom and uh, rather uh, Mike and Shinobu had a good relationship. I can't tell you how they were working together. I didn't see that as much. I definitely saw it with Tom and Shinobu because I was involved, as was everybody else. Ellen, Beth, Diane, Paul, uh, you know, it was all working as a team uh, to how do we make this go even further? How do we go and get Sega Japan uh, to approve? Uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, we were concerned about was what I came up with the idea for Sonic Tuesday, where we're going to do a global launch. And we needed to get the approval of uh, Nick Alexander, who headed up Europe, and we needed to get the approval of Sega Japan so that we could go and do this global launch. Uh, Tom called Nick Alexander and, and Nick said, absolutely, great idea. And we were concerned about what will Nakiyama-san say? And Shinobu said, I'll call him. Shinobu went, called Nakiyama-san. Nakiyama-san said, what a great idea. And we had it. Uh, so it, it was, you know, working as a team on everything that we did, working as a team to go and anytime we did a program of any kind, we wanted to make it bigger and better. And so every member of the team helped to make it better. Here's things we can do from a PR standpoint. Here's things we can do from a sales standpoint. Here's additional things we can do from a marketing standpoint. Here's things we can do from a PR standpoint. It's kind of like Walt Disney. He always wanted additional little things. He called it plussing to go and make the experience. You know, you go to Disneyland. When you're in a queue line, it even helps the experience. That's what we wanted to go and do. And it wasn't... I'm not going to take responsibility. It was the team. And, you know, that's that's the big thing. And to this day, we would all go and work for each other. Those were the favorite times of our life. 
at the Fravor Times working because of what we were able to accomplish together. It was, and I think Tom went and helped uh, do that. Very cool. So when the transition happened, huge change like that at the top, um, directly above you, if I'm not misjudging the hierarchy there, yep. you had to feel the rumbling of that coming to some degree, or I got instead of suggestive, <laughs> did you feel the rumbling of that coming to some degree or another, or was it a very out of the blue? We did not know it was coming. Once again, it was Mr. Nakayama and uh, also with David Rosen talking about who the candidates were. They knew Tom. Tom had worked with Sega when he was at Mattel on various things. You know, and then the crazy story is after Matchbox, after Tom had left Matchbox, he wanted to go and take a vacation with his family and he went to uh, I think it was Maui. It was one of the islands in Hawaii. They chased him there, but I'm, I'm curious about like but internally though in the office. Yeah, I know that that's amazing. Yeah, but like in the cool. office, you guys like we, we didn't know it was coming. Okay. Uh, uh, What's even the transition period like? Does you know? Does Michael just not show up one day and Tom's there? Or like, <laughs> how does that transition even happen for you guys? I mean, you know, uh, I I don't know. I don't remember how we were told, and it was probably Shinobu was uh, telling us what he had been gotten from Nakiyawa Sud. Uh, so I have a feeling it was Shinobu was telling Paul and myself and um, the other department heads uh, that was there. And Paul and I was like, Tom? Oh, okay. You know, it's like, with that. Okay. you know, it was like, here comes Mattel again. <laughs> and, and, you know, and it was, we were making it easy for him because what we had done was made a lot of our processes similar or identical to what was done at Mattel. The different kinds of reports and at Mattel, at Mattel, they were called by the color of the paper that they were on. So it's like, you know, the Marigold Report, the Emerald Report. And we had a Marigold Report. We had a Emerald Report. They were all on white paper, but that's what we called them. And uh, we took even the form numbers that they did for, it used to be MAT33A and it became SEG 33A. So, you know, it, it was those types of things. So Mike like, was- Like, like a quarterback back. coming in that already knows the offensive coordinator. You system. already know the plays. <laughs> you already know the plays. Yeah. And you already know two of the main people who were there and the system so we could go and give it. But it was still, Tom needed to get to know us and what we were doing. We needed to get to know what Tom was doing. You know, I put together a deck, who knows, maybe it was 40 pages of acetate slides for an overhead projector. <laughs> uh, and here is, welcome to Sega Marketing, here's what we've accomplished, and bringing him on an update. And sales would do the same and things like that. 
So that, and here's what we see as the challenges. Here's what we see as the opportunities. Here's what our objectives are. Here's what our goals are. So we're bringing him up to speed. Welcome to the video game business. Okay. And it was a business he, you know, he liked because he, he wasn't directly involved in the television business, but he was close to it in the Mattel days. So it, it was a relatively smooth, speaking for myself, a relatively smooth transition. Okay, cool. All right, so that's that's the the the, the meat grinder stuff I have for you. I have one mater I want to lob at you because uh, that Blake mentioned in our interview. And he said that you have a story or two worth telling from your visit to the Neverland Ranch. So I kind of just wanted to prompt you and let you let you kind of talk about that, how you see fit. He said it was worth worth hearing. <laughs> uh, you know, it's I was I was able to go and develop a uh, relationship with Michael. I was Mr. Nakayama had. They did the deal in Japan with Michael, uh, and they needed somebody to handle day-to-day getting his approvals on things and working with him, and Mr. Nakayama had chosen me. And so I was the only person who interfaced with him. And so I met him in different recording studios where he was recording. I forget what album it was. I could imagine the uh, foot cover, but I don't remember the name of it. And one of his apartments in LA. Uh, and one time I got to go to the Neverland Ranch because that's where he was. You go where Michael is. Uh, <laughs> and I needed to go and show him the latest build of a game uh, to get his approval. And Michael knew games. Uh, he was a game player himself both console and he had it was actually a garage that had been transferred into a game room uh double levels and just arcade games all over bubbles in there playing all the time i never never got to meet bubbles oh Uh, no no i bubbles was not there on the uh occasions i was there i met i met the other animals i met the bubbles is still rocking and rolling bubbles is still around you know, I met the Cowboys, Kareem and Abdul. I believe after Kareem Abdul Jabbar, because they're both very tall. And so I uh, flew down and then drove up to the Neverland Ranch. Uh, you know, and it's like turn right, go 5.1 miles. There'll be a mailbox on the left with a driveway unmarked. Take that up, and you're at the Neverland Ranch. Luckily, my speedometer was good in my car. Because it was exactly 5.1 miles. <laughs> uh, and I had a hotel room. I had checked in in the next town over because that's where I was planning on state and flying back the next day because I had no idea how long I was going to be. Because usually, once uh, Michael and I would finish whatever approval, we would just sit and talk for hours about different things. And we get there. And there was another person who uh, one of the lawyers had brought up getting approval on something else. And they were the meeting before us. And we're uh, it's like, you want to go on a tour? 
And he would say it to the other two people. Uh, and it's like, yeah, absolutely. It's like, and so we hop in a car with Michael, his valet was driving, that's there. And Michael asks uh, his valet, where are um, so-and-so staying tonight? And it's like, he stayed in guest cabin number one, she stayed in guest cabin number three. And it's like, Al, would you like to stay overnight? Go, oh, that would be very nice, Michael. It beats the Radisson, yes, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, and it's like, okay, and so the valet goes, Mr. Nelson will stay in guest cottage number two. I would love to know who has slept sure. in guest cottage not a guest, There wasn't a guest book? There wasn't a guest book? There wasn't a guest book. <laughs> um, and I would just love to know who had stayed there. You know, was this where Elizabeth Taylor stayed? Uh, you know, who knows? But You say, uh, you say use the word cabin. Explain to me how far from what people think of cabins it actually was. <laughs> as far as like the... Well, it, it was a standalone. It was a standalone building. And inside it was a Four Seasons. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just very well appointed. Uh, and there were tchotchkes, you know, here, go and take things that were there with Neverland Ranch logos and things like that. So plain cards, a book and things like that. So that was very nice, you know. And so we went on a tour and uh, saw his rehearsal hall, uh, went into the theater. And it's like, what would you like to see? And it's like, whatever you want, Michael. And so he's getting... Uh, calling up music videos that had never been shown in the U.S. and that were Europe only or here only or weren't coming out. And he's playing projectionist for us on this in this wonderful theater with a full candy counter outside uh, with the big boxes. And uh, so it's like, that's great. And so we saw he has a little museum of stuff and saw all that. And then we went back and Michael drove us back. So I've had Michael Jackson as a chauffeur. And I think that was very, very cool. Very cool. Uh, was the chauffeur in the yeah, car too? The valet had already left uh, and went back. And so, but yeah, it's your driver, M. Jackson. Uh, so, you know, it, it was really great, but it, Did it he like just, the prototype? He loved the prototypes, but he always well, that, had that specific one though. Like you showed him different levels of them. Was that was that just? I guess really what I'm digging for there is, was that a just a like, you know? Did you have this incredible day, and then like the prototype part was like, eh, could have that part could have went better. <laughs> or no, was it no. just first of all, he had he had signed off on what was there, okay. and it was like, here's what we've done since last time, here's what we have acted upon based upon your input. Uh, we were able to go and do this. We couldn't do this because of a limitation, even going down to the music and you know what you can do with a chipset in the Genesis and being able to go and do his hit music. And 
he would go and comment, I want more bottom on this song. I want that. And he's going to explain to me what he specifically wanted on music. I was not a musician, but he went and said, <laughs> tell them in Japan, this is what I want, and they will do what I may. I was going to say, was he able to communicate it in a common enough uh, yeah. vernacular that you yeah. could, okay, yeah. And it was like, don't worry about what it is, just say it exactly as it was. Because I would call, have to call Japan back, there would be a translator with the development team and we're going through things. And, you know, Michael <laughs> would, would do tweaks and, you know, other things. So it was a great back and forth in terms of it. As we got further into the process, there were less things that wanted to be improved or that we had already planned. And it's kind of like, here's what's going to be in the next edition. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I told Michael, if this if his gig as a musician ever came, didn't work out, I'd be happy to hire him as a video game producer because he understood what made a good game. He was able to go and, you know, he, he's been talked about that when he's working on a record uh, with, you know, Quincy Jones or something like that, put this in there because here's how the public's going to respond very specifically to that edition. And they did. And he was able to go and do the same thing on the video games. If you go and enhance what you're doing here in this way, you're going to go and get this reaction from players, which are going to go and say, wow, that's cool. So he gave it that extra in terms of it. Uh, the plus. Plus. He gave it the extra plus. He gave it the extra plus. And, uh, you know, it's like what we say, this was, you know, developed by Michael Jackson. And they said, yeah, sure. Michael was really in it from day one. We did, we did, we, we did a game up on it. It's a, and I didn't have any experience with it really as a kid. I think yeah. I believe we played it, but you know, really, really slicing it up and dissecting it for a game episode. It, really awesome. Just so creative. You know, so yeah. much about it was so unique and different that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, no offense to Sega or you guys, but like, I feel like without his level of just like, Without his input, I, I highly doubt that it could have gotten as, you know, I don't want, weird sounds derogatory, but just unique. Uh, I think it, it has his uniqueness in it. Yeah, and that absolutely. is. And, and, and you have to remember, it just wasn't a Genesis game. Right. It was also an arcade game, which was different. And I had to learn to, how to become an arcade repair band, swapping it out EPROBs for, <laughs> for new levels. Uh, so added skill there. Yeah. Uh, in terms is, that, of, is it on the uh, resume? Did you put it on your LinkedIn bullet points? Yep, it's it's <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Never got electrocuted by the cathode ray tube uh, <laughs> in, in the uh, uh, machines. Uh, but the first time I met Michael, you know, I, uh, Shinobu told me that I had been chosen by Donkey Yamasat. Oh, actually, uh, Dai Sakurai, who was at Sega Consumer Products Globally, he was over here. He was the one who told me, uh, and he reported directly to. Mr. Nakayama, and I said, that's great. Uh, it shows we've got storyboards to go and explain to him. Great, so what are we meeting with him next week? And it's like, tomorrow. 
and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and all I have are storyboards, no descriptions of what the game are. And it's like, oh, and we're flying down to LA. And I was on the phone with uh, Di, with the team, for three or four hours, half of it going over the arcade game so I could explain what the storyboards were and what that was there, and then half of it on the Genesis game. No one's having a good night. We're working late. <laughs> that was like, working late was not a problem. It was just kind of like... I just keep telling the team, though, like letting them know, like whatever you guys had planned, it's not happening anymore. (laughs) We couldn't tell anybody else in Sega of America. The only people who knew were Shinobu and Paul and Mike. Uh, Other than that, this was a top secret thing because it hadn't been announced yet. So Di and I flew down, we met him at the studio, brought him one of the very first Genesis systems. Uh, So this was early August of 89. And I was told by one of his people. uh, So you're dealing with this right when the launch is happening too? Jesus. (laughs) Everything was was, uh, done. It was just, you know. Get the product sure, out. Sure, but I mean, yeah, it's still top of mind. Uh, but sure. it was still a crazy yeah. time. Yeah. Just what else I need on my plate. And I was told, you got 20 minutes, but pre prepared because 20 minutes means 10 minutes. And I'm going four hours on the phone, <laughs> 10 minutes. And I go in, and Michael's there. And then there's this whole group of people who I don't know. Our agent, who I had never met, who did the deal in Japan, his lawyer, a couple of other people, and Dai Sakurai, and they're all standing in a semicircle. And Michael says, have a seat. I'm looking, there's a couch, there's a chair. And I said, Michael, where would you like to sit? And he plops himself down on the floor. And here I am in a suit, plopping myself down on the floor. And I start going through the game. 10 minutes passes, 20 minutes passes, 30 minutes passes. Meanwhile, I have this group of seven people in the semicircle watching Michael and I not saying a word. And they all stay standing up the whole time? They're standing up the whole time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just unbelievable. 45 minutes comes, and intercom goes, Michael, we need you in the studio. And he goes, I'll be there in a few minutes. An hour passes. And I'm taking notes, going through things. He's loving it. Over an hour, I think it was an hour and 10 minutes, a voice comes, Michael, we need you in the studio now. And I don't know who it was, if it was Quincy Jones, if it was their, his main engineer, whatever it was calling. And Mike goes, okay, I'll be right down. And it's like, okay, we need to go and wrap this up. So we had another five minutes. And then said, Michael, would you take a photo? Nice Sakurai had bought a disposable Kodak camera, 
<laughs> with him. I had a photo taken, Michael and I, it's in console wars, uh, and Di and uh, Michael, and we're lucky they came out wonderfully, and later they had them autographed by Michael, and that was it. And Deal closed. Made man, Flory, never have to worry about shit at Sega again, ever again, Al. Flory, <laughs> to Sega of America, another four hours uh, going over the development team. This time I'm doing the talking. Uh, you know, here's what Michael wants and everything like that. Uh, and it was great. And it's like, okay, we'll have an update in two weeks. And so I call his lead person, need to get with Michael. And it's like, I'll get back to you. She calls back a couple hours later. Okay, can you be here in two days? Here is the address you need to go to. And here is the name you need to ask for when you get to the front desk. It was a condo area. Remember the name. Whatever. And it's like, okay, I get there. And you remember two, the name? Oh, I remember the name. I'm not telling you the name. Uh, well, uh, we don't have, no. he's not, we, I, we can't get into hotels now with it. No. <laughs> uh, well, the funny thing is, is so I walked in, it's like uh, the two doormen are, it's like, can I help you, sir? I'm here to see Michael, and they both stiffen up. Okay, who is he? How does he know? And it's like, I stop at the middle of the day. I'm here to see, and I give the name, and they relax. It's like, okay. How much money does someone have to give you for you to tell them the name? <laughs> no amount of money. Uh, I don't talk about what Michael and I discussed, the interactions. Fair. Just it was a phenomenal time. You know, it's, uh, I told you the 5.1 miles. <laughs> I think it was 5.1 miles on the left-hand side. By the way, afterwards, after I stayed at the Neverland Ranch, I drove back to the Holiday Inn and checked out even though I had never checked in. And I knew there was a chance, so I took all my luggage with me when I went to the Nippolite Ridge, and I got on a plane. But yeah, I, I you know, really don't talk about those times. It was just great memories. So it's fun. I believe that. Okay, well, that's, that's a great button, man. Uh, that was, I really appreciate this, Al. This was, this was cool. Um, I'll let you off the hook now. I'm ruining more of your morning. <laughs> or I guess it's your afternoon now at this point. So. Oh, uh, yeah, it uh, is my afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, dude, th th this is incredible. Thank you so, so much. Uh, I really think um, people are going to enjoy this. Our listeners are definitely going to enjoy this. So um, I gave will... you a lot of work having to check mastheads on things now. And... I did. I, but here's the thing. I, I'm a nerd and I love this stuff, so I don't mind that. I like homework. Uh, homework leads to more more obscure questions. I can bug other people as misfortunate as you. <laughs> His last name begins with a K, if I remember correctly. Culkin, Bill Culkin. Okay. Culkin. Bill Culkin. Culkin. Well, just the video. Honestly, I'd never even heard. I don't think I'd even heard that video game yeah. magazine name yeah. before. So that is its own whole tangent that i'm now going to go down so that thanks a lot back, al thanks a lot back, back to the atari days okay uh, bill kunkel k-u-n-k-e-l Artie katz and 
his wife, they were the three leaders of this magazine, the magazine. going back to, to we the do, Atari days. We do, yeah, we do. I told you we did that first Atari, and we, we do, like, we call them random rags, and they're obviously, we think of them as outside the timeline, and just when we find an issue of something that we just want to take a, a, a crack at, we've done that, we've done... Uh, there was this game player strategy guide, something or other. We did once, uh, we did the first EGM recently cause that was Jay's favorite sure. mag, my co-host. So we'll, maybe we'll, we'll do one of those on their first issue, or I guess if it's that far back, maybe not a first issue, but some you sort know, of issue of theirs. The magazines <laughs> were important. That's why, you know, it's kind of like establishing a relationship with them, making sure that they are, get what they need, what they want, fighting for covers. Sure. You know? Sonic's got to be on this cover on this issue. I bet when it's the releases and, and stuff, I have zero doubt that that was a whole thing. It was yeah. it, it was a major thing in terms of what's there. And, you know, choosing on Sonic, it was, it was, we had a worldwide effort. You could only go and release these screenshots worldwide on this date and nothing else. Go you can't go and get the games to play, especially on Sonic 2. Uh, I was gonna say it was probably very different, obviously leverage between the first between the first and the second game, uh, as far as how those those conversations went. But well, you know, it was it was funny. The Sega Japan wanted to show Sonic eight months before it was released at the Tokyo Game Show. They needed a little boosted sales, and they knew that Sonic was really great. And I'm going like, we've got this plan. We're not talking about it. We got to go and keep it a secret. And it's, you know, everybody is going, talking to everybody at Sega Japan, all the way up through Nakayama-san to go and say, put a stop to them doing this. They can't even show it in the back room. And we finally agreed to allow them on one screen on the show floor to just have the title where he comes flying up through the rigs and does the finger whack. And Ed Sebrad at Electronic Gaming Monthly, EGM, he was always at the international shows, the Tokyo Game Show, the shows in Europe. And he was like the only US video game magazine there. So to get a scroop, and he saw this one thing. And he went and I think took like 300 pictures of that game screen like getting trying to get every animation <laughs> and fell in love with it and it's like he call up tell me about this oh yeah that hedgehog thing what can you tell me about it? it's a game uh when's it coming out sometime uh, anything else yeah it's a really good game and had him on the hook forevermore. <laughs> he's, he's got a scoop and he loves Sonic. And he actually hid Sonics in various pages on the magazine. Oh man, that's cool. He would replace page numbers with little teeny tiny Sonics. Oh, that was amazing. there. He loved it so Jay's going to be upset. My co-host is going to be upset to hear this because he never left the Nintendo side and EGM is his favorite magazine. When he finds out that EGM was pro uh, pro Sega Genesis, he's going to be sad inside. <laughs> you know, they, 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 did a, they did a good job on all of the ones. But as I said, there was a 
people liked us because they didn't like the other guy. They were hard to deal with. And yeah, not being an asshole is amazingly effective for I everything in life. <laughs> um, and so they wanted to go, all the magazines wanted to go and help us. And, but they were still covering the major titles from both Nintendo and from all of their third parties. And so I would still have to fight for covers against all of those others. Street Fighter, why do you want to put that on the cover? You know, here's what you really need. Sure. Uh, and with Sonic 2, it's like for three straight months, I want Sonic <laughs> on the cover of EGM. One month, Video Games Computer Entertainment. This month, uh, that's there. And um, so, you know, it was it was a dance that we were doing with them. You know, I had a spreadsheet of, Here's every publication and when they're going to publish what and how. Tracking boards, yeah. And, and just go and make sure that was there. But, uh, and, you know, they wanted to do it. Uh, and Sebrad would go and FedEx me when he got the first copy off the printer of a new issue because he wanted me to go over it and tell him what I didn't like about it. <laughs> Why didn't you do more on this? You're saying this about that game? Yeah. Uh, and all the other. Well, you know, you, you referred to them as important, and just you're speaking from an internal marketing perspective. Uh, I can I assure you that to us as the kids that were living through that, yeah. they were incredibly important to us too. So uh, on behalf of all of them, and myself included, thank you for both the internal one that you guys made and your influence on yeah. the third-party ones uh, because, yeah, they were – uh, like you said, there was no other way. You were talking about Nintendo. There was no other way to get information and like just the scarcity of it. And then the presentation of it was just, I don't even, blinding for children <laughs> of that era. Not so thank what you. What was inside, yeah. uh, as Tom calls them, tidy billboards. Because yeah. you go into a newsstand or you go into a game store and there are the front covers. And those were the tidy billboards of, that's Sonic. That's this game. That's there. And so we wanted to go and make sure. And regularly I would fly out to Chicago to be with EGM. I'd fly down to LA to be with Video Games and Computer Entertainment. As I said, Gay Pro was one exit down, or one exit up, I guess it was, from us in there. As well as the other gay magazines, uh, Game Informer and, and other things, as well as newspapers and general interest magazines. So, you know, we wanted Sega everywhere it could go and be talked about. That they all reached different audiences. And there were different messages or a little different slight positioning based on who we were talking to and who are the buyers. You know, talking to Playboy and the guy who writes bad video games at Playboy was a little different than talking to GamePro in terms of different audience, I think. Uh, but, you know, that's what uh, we did. But that's all part of, you know, the planning. That had a great PR team headed up by Alabama Van Buskirk, great PR agency. Uh, but once again, it's all about the team we had. Amen, man. Well, thank you, Al. This was, was incredible, man. And if you, when you speak to the game console later today, let me talk to him. 
Ask him if he's cool with it. <laughs> All right. We'll see. I will. Okay. I probably will talk to him someday today. If it's not today, it'll be tomorrow. Yeah, no, I would love to hear the Sega perspective. Like I said, just coming off those two conversations with Nintendo counselors, Absolutely. I would love to hear the Sega perspective. And I have stories about Nintendo game counselors, but I'm not going to go into that. <laughs> Different, well, you know. Uh, uh, Al, I'm, I'm, you know, we can make this a semi-regular yeah. thing. I'm happy to a jump on and do this second, at a later date. Thirty-second story. Okay, fire away. <laughs> so we're in, uh, I think it was the Bellevue Mall in Seattle, doing the where we had the vote on uh, Genesis Sonic versus Mario. And we were in center court, and we had our, our literally in a circle in center court with all of our games on one side, the stage on the other side. We had an MC. There was a second floor, and we see some Nintendo game counselors in their Nintendo game counselor jackets. They got their and jackets. They, they both both these guys okay. talked about those jackets, man. <laughs> these were beautiful jackets. Okay. We did not have game counselor jackets like these things were. These were really great. And they walk in and it's kind of like we're Nintendo <laughs> game counselors. Aren't we cool? Not saying a word. They just, you know, seeing the front, seeing the big things that says Nintendo on there. And they walk in uh, into the center of Sega hubbub. Nobody talked to them. All of the people who were doing it ignored them because they were busy playing Sega. <laughs> great. And so yeah, I can't. I can't believe you didn't. Do you have some pictures that you snapped on one of those little disposable cameras for that? I can't believe you don't yeah, have that. They, they may have been one. Uh, Peter Maid, was... who was the head of sales and marketing, came. And he would not come into the circle. He walked outside the circle. <laughs> and Ellen Beth and I are looking down, uh, are looking down on the area from the from the second floor. And it's like, is that who I think it is? And it's like, that's Peter May. And we're just watching him, and he won't come in to the Sega environment. It's like there's a fence. Yeah. <laughs> he's be electrocuted. And he's just walking and looking at everything from every angle and listening to what the MC is saying uh, and realizing that we are doing Sonic versus Mario. I'm sure he loved that because yeah. we were helping him sell. It was just a very great day. And as I said, the highest percentage of people choosing Sonic versus Mario out of all of the stops was in Seattle, Nintendo's hometown. Too much fun, I'm sure. the Cape counselors voted for us. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll ask the, the guys, Nate, I'll ask the two guys whether they were, where, what, what uh, well, I have the recording, of course. So I'll, I'll ask them uh, whether they were there. Maybe it'd be incredible if one of those guys were there. <laughs> I'm saying something very nice about uh, Nintendo. Those were great jackets. Yeah, they okay. do. I, they, they... I'm happy our game counselors never saw them. Okay, oh, we did. A, yeah. We have a great bomber jacket that everybody loves, and we gave as Christmas presents to everybody. And that is a fabulous jacket. I've seen that jacket Sonic. as well, actually. It's yeah. phenomenal. 
uh, but we didn't have a game counselor centric yeah. jacket. Yeah, the one the one guy's name Caesar. He doesn't have. He can't find his anymore, and he was. You could see visibly torn up about it when when and when he was talking about not, no longer having that game counselor jacket that he had. So yeah, they, they, they like the them too. With eight locks on it, you know. Uh, no, it's we're we're very proud to go in and keep those. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's fun. Well, this has been wonderful. This has been great. Uh, Likewise, out. And you, my man. voice has now totally gone. It wasn't good to begin with, and now it's totally out. But I appreciate it. Uh, and hello to all your listeners. Hello to all your viewers. Uh, just remember, I want to end with one thing. Genesis does. Sega! <laughs>